We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome. This is Hampton Keithley with Bob Brandon, and we are continuing our book review of Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster. And today we're going to be in Leviticus. So how are you, Bob? I'm good, and I'm really excited about this. I wanted to ask you, though, before we got started, you know, I already know the answer to this, but just so everyone knows this, boy, your shoulder's in bad shape structurally, isn't it? Yes, it is. So I'm scheduled for surgery (laughs) in three weeks. So you can put me all back together. Three weeks out. Okay. Well, we'll be praying for yeah, I like the guy. So, sorry to hear that, but I'm glad for the diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. I'm, I'm glad for the clarity of the, you know, the MRIs, the X-ray, all the stuff they can do. You know, to really know. We've said this before. The real strength of Western medicine is surgery. I think so. You're yeah. in, you're in good hands here in the West when you need something structurally done. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. We'll with that in mind, <clears throat> let's get started. So I think what I'd like to do to begin our section on Leviticus is uh, through through the eyes of Dempster is to read Leviticus chapter 16. So here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, that he must not enter at any time into the holy place inside the special curtain in front of the atonement lid that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement lid. You know, I hate to do this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to interrupt the text. Okay. Here's why. People have puzzled forever, as have I, over what the heck these guys did, that God killed them right away. I mean, it said, the text said they made strange fire in their fire pan. And they had just done an offering, and it was accepted by the Lord. It was you know, a tremendous step forward in the, in Israel's history. God had accepted their sacrifice. You know, fire came out from them, consumed the sacrifice. Everything was great. The next sentence, 
these guys get killed by God's fire, you know, directly from him. Mm -hmm. And so people are puzzled. Well, what exactly did they do? And the very next uh, paragraph in the text where this happened is a prohibition about being drunk when you're serving as a priest. So many have just connected it sequentially like that. Like maybe these guys were drunk when they did this. However, look at the way this began. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. And then he's telling Aaron, don't go in the Holy of Holies. So I think maybe it's some combination of that. Maybe there was drunkenness, but maybe the ultimate sin was somehow they went in the Holy of Holies. I mean, this text sure reads that way. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to point that out. And I've never really seen that until this morning. But... So anyway, let's move on with the text. Okay. In, in this way, Aaron is to enter into the sanctuary with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on a holy linen tunic. Linen leggings are to cover his body, and he's to wrap himself with a linen sash and wrap his head with a linen turban. They are holy garments. So he must bathe his body in water and put them on. He must also take two male goats from the congregation of the Israelites for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron is to present the sin offering bull, which is for himself, and is to make atonement on behalf of himself and his household. He must then take the two goats and stand them before the Lord at the entrance of the meeting tent. And Aaron is to cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. Aaron must then present the goat, which has been designated by lot for the Lord, and he is to make it a sin offering. But the goat, which has been designated by lot for Azazel, is to be stood alive before the Lord to make atonement on it by sending it away to Azazel into the desert. Aaron is to present the sin offering bull, which is for himself, and he is to make atonement on behalf of himself and his household. He is to slaughter slaughter the sin offering bull, which is for himself, and take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and a full double handful of finely ground fragrant incense and bring them inside the curtain. He must then put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of incense will cover the atonement lid, which is above the ark of the testimony, so that he will not die. Then he is to take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the eastern face of the atonement lid. And in front of the atonement lid, he is to sprinkle some of the blood seven times with his finger. He must then slaughter the sin offering goat, which is for the people. He is to bring its blood inside the curtain, and he is to do with his blood just as he did to the blood of the bull. 
he is to sprinkle it on the atonement lid and in front of the atonement lid. So he is to make atonement for the holy place from the impurities of the Israelites and from their transgressions with regard to all their sins. And thus he is to do for the meeting tent, which resides with them in the midst of their impurities. <clears throat> Nobody is to be in the meeting tent when he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he goes out. And he has made atonement on his behalf, on behalf of his household, and on behalf of the whole assembly of Israel. Then he is to go out to the altar, which is before the Lord, and make atonement for it. He is to take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it all around the horns, on the horns of the altar. Then he is to sprinkle on some of it, on it, some of the blood with his fingers seven times and cleanse and consecrate it from the impurities of the Israelites. When he has finished purifying the holy place, the meeting tent, and the altar, he is to present the live goat. Aaron is to lay his two hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the Israelites and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he is to put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the desert by the hand of a man standing ready. The goat is to bear on itself all their iniquities into an inaccessible land. So he is to send the goat away in the desert. Aaron must then enter the meeting tent and take off the linen garments which he had put, put on when he entered the sanctuary and leave them there. Then he must bathe his body in water in a holy place. But on his clothes, put on his clothes and go out and make his burnt offering and the people's burnt offering. So he is to make atonement on behalf of himself and the people. Then he is to offer up the fat of the sin offering and the smoke on the altar. And the one who sent the goat away to Azazel must wash his clothes bathe his body in water, and afterward he may re-enter the camp. The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought to make atonement in the holy place, must be brought outside the camp, and their hide, their flesh, and their dung must be burned up. And the one who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may re-enter the camp. Then he is, this is to be a perpetual statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you must humble yourselves and do no work of any kind. Both the native citizen and the resident foreigner who lives in your midst. For on this day, atonement is to be made for you. To cleanse you from all your sins, you must be clean before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest for you. You must humble yourselves. It is a perpetual statute. The priest who is anointed and ordained to act as high priest in place of his father is to make atonement. He is to put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and he is to purify the most holy place. He is to purify the meeting tent and the altar, and he is to make atonement for the priests for all the people of the assembly. This is to be a perpetual statute for you, to make atonement for the Israelites for all their sins once a year. So he did.
just as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's a big chapter, Hampton. That is. And there's a lot of stuff in there. So did you have any immediate questions about that? I was wondering why Aaron needed a whole bull and the whole the whole nation only needed a little goat. <laughs> well, the, he was going to go into the holy place, so he needed a lot, of, a lot more blood to cover him. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Um, one thing I wanted to point out. I mean, Dempster obviously is going to touch on this chapter. It's a really significant chapter in all, in all of the scriptures. But um, one thing I wanted to touch on and highlight the net bible right your bible is um the notes that pertain to the use of the term azazel right take you know draw lots for these goats mm -hmm. and and one you know one goes to the lord and one goes to azazel so people have puzzled down through the ages you know what what's azazel because you could translate that Almost literally, it's where we get the phrase scapegoat. You you could literally translate it that way. Um, but as your notes point out, I, I go with the majority. I'm not always in the majority on these sorts of things, but I, I certainly am in this case. Uh, the majority of people, scholars today, think that's a reference to a demon. And that, that demon's name is Azazel. And that's what I think this is. I mean, the parallelism is hard to escape. Uh, cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. That seems clear, right? That, that's hard to get around. So anyway, what I think the Lord is prescribing here is, uh, you know, put all the sins of the entire congregation onto this goat and send it back where it came from. I think that's the significance of that. Send this to the demonic realm where all sin ultimately originates, right? Send it back. I, I think that's the essence of that. Yeah, that's a really long footnote. It is. That footnote's almost as half the size of the chapter itself. <laughs> but it has great information in there, and that's... That's why I recommend this Bible. Um, you know, like all good exegetes, it lists your options. You don't have to go with the way I'm taking it. You could go with some other options that you list there. But uh, most of the space is dedicated to, to the view that I hold. So, and, and the way, you know, what Dempster has taught us to do is to relate all these things ultimately to the deepest themes in the scripture. And for me, one of the deepest, if not the deepest is uh, satanic conflict. Right. Right. And so that, that, that instantly, you know, clarifies what's going on. But that's very interesting. I didn't know that. And I had not heard that view. Yeah. So let's keep, keep that in mind. And now let's turn to our great guide, Stephen Dempster, and let's just address him as if he were here personally. Hey, Steve, <clears throat> take us through Leviticus. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> okay, so he's going to, but I'm going to warm up a little bit. You know, as a coach, I can't just dive into stuff. You got to get your heart rate up before you dive in. So he left off his last section on Exodus, raising these questions. Questions linger, he said, in a simple two-word sentence. What obstacles or how will Israel be able to maintain its relationship with Yahweh? That's the book of Leviticus. Mm -hmm. That's answering that question. That's critical to keep in mind. Here's another warm-up, and this is just my own. And I, I don't want people to internalize this very much. I just want them to, to listen to it and have some fun with it. If you imagine God the Father having a physical body, he doesn't. Jesus Christ does. But God, God's a spirit. Although, you know, it did say in Exodus, I'll let you see my back. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> you know, am I taking that too literally? Or why, right? God didn't say, to Mo, when Moses said, let me see you, God didn't say, you know, I'm a spirit, you can't see me. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I wonder let him about see that. his face. Right. He distinguishes his back and his face. So I, I don't know. I just think sometimes we push our own limitations onto these things. I've, I don't know. And, and I'm happy not knowing. That's okay. There's, I got plenty of other stuff to learn it's before. It's been I... explained as an anthropomorphism or something like that to help us understand. It has. Yeah. It has. And yet the text, the text itself doesn't read like that. You know, if, if you're putting yourself in, in Moses' shoes with, with your own point of view, that's... It seems to me <laughs> more than an anthropomorphism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but regardless, here's where I'm going with that. If, so if you imag imagined the book of Genesis as God's hands, but only to represent work, right? The work of creation. Obviously, Yahweh being omnipotent, can speak and it's done. He doesn't have to use his hands. Although you do have terms back in Genesis, like he formed the woman and formed Adam. Then that doesn't, that seems more like the, the touch of a potter or the touch of a, right. A craftsman mm -hmm. as, as opposed to just speaking. But regardless, if you imagined the book of Genesis as the work of God's hands, so you're seeing his work. Then in the book of Exodus, you're seeing his heart. Those two passages we read last time, you know, my name is Yahweh. I'm a gracious God and forgiving and merciful. Right? That's to me, that's his heart. Right. So if, if you're following along with this, again, don't hold this too tightly, but if those two steps, you know, had some value in thinking through the books that way, Leviticus would be his mind. And I hold that out to people. 
is Leviticus is not a a book that's read very often. Like for oh, let me do my devotionals, right? Oh, if your house has some mold, you know, have the <laughs> right. We don't we don't turn to Leviticus for our devotionals, right? But I think in in my own approach, when I'm reading Leviticus, I'm looking inside God's brain. And that that's powerful. You're, you're getting to know him at a level that's critical for a mature relationship with him. Yeah. So, and, and to, to back that up a little bit, think of where this was delivered. Like we, we could ask it as a trivia question. We've asked this, this other question before, like which book of the Bible is the most concerned about the word of God itself? And you would turn to Jeremiah. He's the answer to that. But if you asked which part of the Bible is most, you know how we explain uh, the theory of inspiration, like 100% God, 100% man, right? But we, and without mixture. But if you could nuance that a little bit and say, well, which one is Moses almost just recording as opposed to thinking it through and writing it down? So in that sense, you know, the human author is minimized in the book of Leviticus and God is maximized. And it's you're getting this almost directly from his lips. Yeah. Lots right. You, right. You know what I'm saying? So he's mm -hmm. he's talking to Moses on Mount Sinai alone. And Moses is recording not not composing too much. He's more recording the book of Leviticus. You're getting the mind of God directly. And it's the center of the Pentateuch and the center of the center of the Pentateuch was what we just read, the Day of Atonement. So atonement must be really at the front of his mind. And let's think about that term just for a second. So it's one of those terms that uh, carries its meaning just in the word itself, right? If you broke the word atonement down to at one meant, that's mm -hmm. exactly what it means, right? God, God wants to be one with humanity again, like he was in the garden, right? So he's going to make a way that we can be at one with him. And to do that, you've got to remove the obstacle. <laughs> what, what, like what's keeping us apart? Well, sin. So atonement, you know, as a expression of metonymy, the substitution of the cause for the effect, right? Atonement is removing the block removing the blockage. He's, he's going to do some heart surgery on his people and, and take out their block. So let's get back to Dempster. It's answering the question, uh, what's the obstacle, right? How do we maintain a relationship with Yahweh? And it's kind of interesting um, you implicitly get this from Dempster 
but we're just going to make it explicit. If Israel thought Pharaoh was a problem, way do you meet Yahweh? <laughs> mm -hmm. He's going to be a big obstacle to you going into the promised land because you're going to have to go in with him. And Israel decides to line up against him. And that's going to be a problem. And he's going to wipe out that whole generation. So let's, Stephen, let's get back to you. Let's have you say a few words here. So here's how Dempster begins the section on Leviticus. The book of Leviticus continues the Sinai experience and in particular, the legislation that was revealed to Moses. See, that's a good way. It was the legislation was revealed to Mo It's not Moses cooking it up. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So with the completion of the sanctuary, that's uh the tabernacle. Okay, those those words in this context are interchangeable. So with the completion of the sanctuary, various issues are considered. The means of approach to God through sacrifice, a narrative describing the installation of the priesthood and a disaster associated with the wrong approach to God, and the law dealing with the day of atonement. Laws relating to uncleanness and holiness are inserted between these last two sections. Another division, chapters 17 through 26, addresses major ethical issues for the entire community and is sometimes called the holiness code. An appendix dealing with vows is added to the material. Now that last section of Leviticus about vows, I could see that being more Moses. You okay. know, I, I, I think as things developed and, and they practiced their faith, their walk with the Lord, certain issues came up and Moses would have to clarify further things. So my guess is in chapter 27, you're getting a little more Moses as opposed to Yahweh. Uh, obviously all under inspiration. Right, God, God would refer to Leviticus chapter seventeen as His own words. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> so next section, let me let me ask a warm up question as we get into the next paragraph. We've been taught by Dempster that when we hold the concept of geography in our mind were to think of the theme of dominion. And when we hold the concept of genealogy in our mind, were to um, associate that with the theme of dynasty. Okay. So, so let's keep that at the ready while we read this next paragraph. Leviticus sketches a geography of holiness in which sin is removed from the Israelite camp by means of sacrifice offered by a person with a specific genealogical descent. In fact, it's the tribe of Levi and in particular, 
the priestly line of Aaron that provide this service. The Levites intercede for Israel as it brings its various sacrifices and offerings. It's the high priest who makes the most important offering of the year to expel the sins of Israel from the camp, maintaining the holiness of the geographical sphere. Here, genealogy and geography merge. It's the high priest alone who can have access to God's immediate presence, representing the people. He's a particular seed of Israel, represents the seed of Israel. In his person, the people can live in the geographical zone of God's presence. What a remarkable paragraph. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? What a, what a way to shape our own minds around those twin themes of dominion and dynasty and to see the book of Leviticus strongly supporting those two themes. I'll bet we haven't read it that way before. No. But but I'm certain that's that's there. We should. Our our understanding of Leviticus would be much deeper when it's embedded within the themes of dominion and dynasty. So next little bit. The classic description of the priest's activity on the Day of Atonement is found in the centerpiece of the book, Leviticus 16, which is virtually the center of the Torah. This particular day, the 10th day of the seventh month, was the only time the high priest could gain immediate access to the divine presence by entering the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, where the Ark of God and the cherubim were located. The high priest represents virtually an Adamic figure, but one who's able to come near the cherubim without being slain. He makes an annual atonement for the sins of the people by sprinkling the blood of a sacrificial animal on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the place of atonement. Consequently, he's able to leave the sanctuary and, in a ritual act, to place his hand on the head of another animal, to confess all the sins of the community, and to have the animal removed from the camp. A symbolic transfer has occurred. As the text makes clear, the goat's departure means the comprehensive removal of the community's sin from the camp, ensuring for another year that the people can coexist with a holy God. Anything stand out to you there, Hampton? No. So I'd like to bring up a couple things from that paragraph. One, one let's discuss the big umbrella first. He says a symbolic transfer has incurred, has occurred. And I think sometimes uh, once people are confronted with the concept of symbolism in the scriptures, they run amok. <laughs> right? 
they right they they either just punt like oh that's so confusing right there's no way i can get that you know what's with all these symbols or they could go so far down that trail that they almost abuse the concept so like rarely finding hidden meaning in the yes. five stones that David picked up. To... Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So let me address symbolism in a really broad sense to begin to um, put us on more solid ground. I love symbolism. Um, if you know that the book of Revelation, for instance, is a very simple place to start with that, even though it's the last book um, of the Bible. But I've always explained the symbolism there, like all of a sudden John will say, you know, I saw in a vision a great dragon. And there was a woman and the moon and the stars and the 12 suns. Right. <laughs> You're like, well, OK, Satan versus Israel. Okay, that's not hard, but a lot of people stumble over that. And the way I always try to explain it is, you know, if you picked up at least, I don't know if today you would, but maybe in our childhood, this would be more applicable. If you picked up a newspaper when we were children, it had an editorial section. And sometimes the editorials had cartoons with them. Not cartoons like ha-ha, but pictorial demonstrations of the subject that was going on. And in that little one-frame cartoon, say you saw a bear, big bear, that was holding a hammer in one hand, a sickle in the other. And on the other side of the cartoon, there was an old man in a stovepipe hat. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, the jacket with the tail. You would say... That's Russia versus the United States. Sure. And and no one would argue, right? The, you, how could you take that any other way? It, that would instantly communicate what was going on. If here's, here's another approach to the subject. If you showed me a little miniature football helmet that was solid orange, with a brown and white stripe down the middle, I go, that's the Cleveland Browns. Right. And no no one would, right? Everyone would go, well, that's exactly what that is, representing. So we, we're very used to symbolism. It's just so natural to us that, that we haven't detailed it out, how it works in our mind. But it's very powerful. Yes. So... You, you'll see other images in the scripture, like a tall tree. Well, that represents a king or a kingdom, mm -hmm. right? Nebuchadnezzar's going to have a dream. Oh, here, there's this giant tree where all the birds of the air nest in the tree. It's his kingdom. That's symbolic, but it's not, you're not free to make that mean anything you want. You, you're just free to recognize the symbolism. So back to Leviticus. Leviticus is highly symbolic. When you see blood in mentioned in Leviticus, what does that represent? Covering the sin? Well, yeah, it's 
Well, so what you're doing there, that's a fantastic answer because what you're doing is metonymy, the cause for the effect, right? But the it'll just literally say, God, God will say in Leviticus, hey, when you eat an animal, you make sure to drain the blood out. Don't eat the blood with the animal, right? right. Well, why? And because he says the blood is the life. So it takes a life to remove sin. So that's where your brain went. I mean, right. you're just too fast. You automatically made that connection. But blood literally represents life. So that's how atonement is made through the sacrifice of a life. Okay. So that's why there's so much blood in there. How about, we'll get to this maybe a little more explicitly towards the end of our time this morning. Remember how in, in the sacrifices in that book, it's always, hey, all the fat belongs to God. Like a right. lot of the sacrifices, I don't think the Western reader has this picture too clearly in their mind. They were eaten. The, it was lunchtime, right? You would sacrifice the animal, but a lot of that was shared with the priests and then the people making the offering and then the hungry people who needed to eat, right? So it's a whole context of a meal that's going on with these sacrifices. Yeah. But <clears throat> so all the fat, though, went to the lord now why is that what what is that symbolizing like typically we think here's one route to it which i think is wrong but it immediately appears in our mind well when you go get a good steak at a restaurant you want some fat in there because yeah. a lot of the taste is conveyed through the fat so it's possible to say, well, the best part of the sacrifice belongs to God. You guys can eat, eat right, the, re the rest of it. But, you know, the fat belongs to me. And there might be a little bit of element of that, but I don't think that's hitting the bullseye. And I think, I think the bullseye of the fat is the sin nature. So God wants the fat removed from humanity. He wants the sin nature gone. Like you don't keep the sin nature. You sacrifice that to me. Interesting. I think that's what's going on. But if you clearly identify the symbolism in the book of Leviticus, it becomes this the map into God's mind. And it's so fruitful for our growth with him. So thanks for the rabbit trail. Back to Dempster. This ritual, he's referring to the Day of the Atonement that we read earlier, institutionalizes the manner of God's forgiveness that was revealed after the golden calf incident. All the iniquities of the Israelites and all their rebellions and all their sins are symbolically placed on the scapegoat. The last time this precise sequence of the vocabulary of transgression occurred 
was during God's revelation of his name to Moses on Sinai as the forgiver of iniquities, rebellions, and sins. So let's pause there for a second. Dempster does such a fantastic job of demonstrating for us how to read. And part of how to read is vocabulary. And when you see certain vocabulary mentioned explicitly in two passages, that you got to connect those. That That's what he's doing here. Often Dempster will connect things via theme, and he's right to do so. But now and then you got to connect it via vocabulary. So the iniquities, rebellions, and sins, he's connecting back to Exodus 34? Yes, with Leviticus 16. So in, in other words, at the very core of the Pentateuch, again, is God's mercy and forgiveness of sins, rebellions, and iniquities. See how he's doing that? Mm -hmm. That's critical. So he goes on to say, it is significant that the camp almost becomes like a garden of Eden. And when he says the camp, he's talking about the, the immediate environment that the Israelites lived in with this tabernacle at the center of the camp. Right. Okay. They're recreating Eden. Well, God is recreating Eden for them. So the people can exist in the presence of God without fear of death. The echoes of Genesis 22. Let's pause there. What's that? You know, I've, I've told you a hundred times, I'm not a chapter and verse guy. It doesn't go into my brain that way. I don't keep track of where I am in the text. I just read the text, right? My brain doesn't go, oh, now I'm reading Genesis 22. It, my brain will say, now I'm reading about Abraham sacrificing his son, Isaac. Right. Okay. <laughs> so that's Genesis 22. The echoes of Genesis 22 should not be overlooked either. So let's pause there. The echoes. So it's not just themes and vocabulary when we read. It's echoes, right? It's, oh, I remember that, right? Mm -hmm. Certain certain passages should evoke uh, our memories of certain previous passages. You know, we've all had that in a physical sense. <clears throat> you know, readings primarily a mental exercise. It, it doesn't necessarily engage our smell or our hearing or our taste, though it can refer to that. It can trigger those, but we don't read with our senses. We read with our mind. But hasn't everybody had this experience? You know, for whatever reason, you got to go to work or you're going to get up, walk outside your house in the morning and there will be a particular smell. And instantly, your brain goes back to when you've had that smell before. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, if, if there's a skunk outside or if it just rained and, you know, it feels like God just pine sawed your whole property and it's all fresh well, and clean. Every time I smell a skunk here in Texas, I think of Colorado. Sure. Right? Your brain like instantly. Marijuana everywhere. <laughs> there you go. Your brain instantly does that. So, so it is with um, echoes. 
right? There, we do this physically. Just make sure you do it mentally also. So animals that are slain take the place of the sinner. Remember, God provided the ram. He didn't let Isaac be killed. Right. So this, right, when you're reading Leviticus, you know, that passage of Abraham's sacrifice should be held in your mind. So this is particularly true on the Day of Atonement. As mentioned before, the only texts in which three important sacrificial terms occur together, the only texts in the Bible where you get those three terms are Leviticus 8 and 9, then 16, Genesis 22. You know, along with the uh, uh, Exodus 34. Right. So by means of these inner, he's quoting another commentator here, by means of these inner biblical connections, the solitary sacrifice of Abraham on a remote mountain points toward the communal worship of God's people in which the divine reality appears. The subsequent holiness code, that's Leviticus 17 through 26, like things like uh, don't have mixed fabric in your clothing, stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Which is are more of those bizarre, like you read that, you just go, okay, I'm, you know, I'm really glad I don't live back then. <laughs> <laughs> right? right, I got what you're saying, but I actually we don't get what he's saying, but okay, I got what you're saying, you know, I'm glad I live in 21st century America. But we really shouldn't be. Let's read on. So the subsequent holiness code reveals an important textual logic. So let me gloss that. Reveals the important mind of God. After the indicative, I'll come back to that in a second, of sacrificial forgiveness climactically realized on the Day of Atonement, there is the ethical imperative of holiness. So to you and I, Hampton, that sat in classrooms for much of our adult lives, that kind of language is very familiar. What Dempster, Dempster's just showing you that he's a scholar, right? <laughs> right. Indicative and, so, and imperative. Yes. So those that's what's called in, in language study. Those relate to the mood of a verb. So indicative, when we talk in the indicative mood, we're making statements about reality. When we talk in the imperative mood, we're making statements about what you should do, right? My dad mostly spoke in the imperative mood to me right? growing up. There's another mood, right? The subjunctive. And subjunctive, when you speak in that mood, I'll give you an illustration in a second, but you're talking about potential or probability, right? So I should go to swim practice. That's potential or probable, right? I am going to swim practice. That's indicative. I should or could. That's subjunctive. That's possible or probable. 
By the way, when you lie, you lie in the indicative. <laughs> you want to make your lie sound like a statement of reality. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Right? So, um, Bob, Kathy will say, did you get the lettuce that I sent you to the store? To get? Um, no, uh, they were out. Okay, <laughs> I that's a right. I'm using the indicative mood to lie. <laughs> I don't really do that, Hampton. That was just an example. Okay, okay but in the imperative, that's command, right? So let me read it again. So we got what Dempster's trying to communicate. After the indicative of sacrificial forgiveness. So that's the first 16 chapters of living. So in other words, the reality of it, God has set up the system by which forgiveness can happen. So after the indicative of sacrificial forgiveness, climactically realized on the day of atonement, there is the ethical imperative of, so now that this reality exists, now there's the imperative mood. In other words, you you know, do X, Y, and Z. Now that A, B, C exists, now do X, Y, and Z. Right. That's what he's saying. Israelites are expected to mirror the divine likeness to the world. So when, when we read that, just put your own name in there. Bob is supposed to mirror the divine likeness to the world. More specifically, Bob is to be holy as Yahweh is holy. Mm, that's a tall task, but that's the mind of God. And so to function as a priestly mediator of God. It's all of us. That's our job description now. In a lot of ways, you could boil down, you know, our daily activities should somehow ultimately reflect search and rescue, right? <laughs> bring, bring the unbelievers in. But the way to do that is to reflect God's holiness, is to be holy, just like he is. In, in whatever our vocations are, right, you can be a priest in, in any setting. So... Yeah. They are to act ethically in all spheres of life. That's Leviticus 18 through 19. They are to be holy in the land they're going to possess. They are to treat one another justly. The Canaanites are being dispossessed from the land because they've made it unholy through their acts of injustices. Israelites are to live differently bringing even the sphere of land and time under divine lordship. The stress on the land, economy, and time coincide in this text. Holiness should radiate from the epicenter of the Holy of Holies through Israelite lives to permeate the entire land. That's a good picture. Isn't it? And so for the the believer today, the Holy of Holies is in you. It's inside you. You're the temple, Paul says. 
So let that radiate outwards. What, what would keep it from radiating out? Well, Leviticus is, this is not Dempster now, this is me. But Leviticus is very concerned that we distinguish between clean and unclean. <laughs> because unclean stuff will keep that holiness from radiating out. Right. So just, just imagine if you're muddy. Right. To do, in a sense, God's playing, saying, don't play in the mud because you'll get dirty and then my holiness won't radiate out. Not, not only will I not be close to you if you do that, I can't hug you when you're dirty and muddy, but it'll also keep the holiness from radiating out. So when you're reading all this stuff, like you can eat this, you can't eat that, you know, don't have two kinds of fabric in your field make sure your garden plot you know is like is ordered like this that that symbol it, yes he wanted them to do that but as a symbol to learn how to distinguish clean and unclean that if we raised our children like that in the household of faith we would be a much powerful people of god Mm -hmm. Yeah, but how about <clears throat> how about this in um, the, his last sentence, second to last sentence of that paragraph? The stress on the land, economy, and time—you you do get economic statements in Leviticus, right? Mo mostly in the form of you know, don't abuse your neighbor economically. Mm -hmm. But. In our discussions in our earlier podcasts, it, raising the question, what kind of economy would Jesus run when he comes here? We decided it would be, at least I decided. I think you were, you were tentative about hanging with me on this, but I think it's going to be capitalism. However... Or it's monarchy. Gonna, Didn't we talk about monarchy too? Yes. Yes. But we I, have a benevolent king. Yeah. So and it, here's the nuance I would add. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a holy capitalism. Not a... Crony earth, capitalism. <laughs> right. Right. Not a sinful or... Right. Not a, uh, not a sinful capitalism but a holy capitalism. There's nothing inherently corrupt about capitalism. Inherently. There is in communism. There is in socialism. But there's nothing inherently wrong with capitalism. It's our sin nature that twists it. Right. So anyway, just interesting thoughts. Let's continue on with Stephen. This becomes a central focus, like holiness radiating out in Leviticus 25, in which the institution of the sabbatical year and of the ultimate such year, Jubilee, is described. When Israel enters Canaan, a yearly sabbatical rest would be required for the land, which would affirm divine ownership. After seven such sabbatical cycles, all land 
that indigent Israelites had sold would revert to them. Israelites who had sold themselves into slavery for debt relief would also gain their freedom. But this would happen only on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would blow his trumpet. Thus, this particular day had relevance, not only for forgiveness, but also for land and liberty. Therefore, the land was understood as a trust from the divine Lord, landlord, who is pictured as living in relationship with the Israelites in the land in the same way that he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. See, Israel was taught through the book of Leviticus, again, through the mind of God, that the land was really God's. <laughs> and you could, quote, own sections of it. I, I would use the word steward mm -hmm. the land, uh, but it reverted back every 50 years to the original steward. And if you sold it, you had to sell it with that reversion in mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's, right. That's, that would be difficult to, I guess you would just be renting it for a while. Basically. You would just be renting it. I mean, that's a, but <clears throat> think of that concept. And so that's why I say, when we think about what economy is Jesus going to run, it's going to be capitalism, I believe. But with holy, like this, capitalism with the thought that you don't really own that, you're stewarding it. Right. So you have soul as in only. You, you have soul stewardship, but you're a steward. You're not really an owner. All the money, all the land ultimately belongs to God. So he, he's letting you steward it as his image, but it really belongs to him. I think that's the economy he's going to run. Yeah, that's interesting. So to think about the, a few billionaires that are hoarding it, not being, maybe not being good stewards. Yeah, they're using it for power instead of uh, to radiate God's holiness. They're, they're using it you know, to build their own name, right? Back back to the Tower of Babel. Well, I heard a podcast yesterday and the guy made the comment that uh, you can't move or live past your worldview. So, you know, you either believe there's a God or you believe there's not. So can't expect them to be following God's principles if they don't believe in him. Correct. You know, if, if we communicated... Only that to our listeners over time, that would be a job well done. Please view your Christian faith not as a religion, but as a worldview. That's what it really is. Yeah. So last uh, two paragraphs, and then we'll finish the book of Leviticus, per our guide, Stephen Dempster, within the context of the whole book, Dominion and Dynasty.
But if there was a negative note in Exodus, the same is true for Leviticus. The provision of the sacrificial system and the annual ritual of the Day of Atonement presuppose sin and transgression. The narrative sections in the text describe the installation of the priesthood, which ends in disaster. <laughs> and another tragedy that also results in divine judgment. So what he's referring to there is uh, obviously when Nadab and Abihu were killed right. by God. God's right. But then also when that guy curses Yahweh and they, they stone him. The whole congregation stones him for that. So th that's what he's referring to. Okay. When the priests are consecrated, divine fire consumes their first sacrificial offering. That's a good thing, right? The glorious moment is immediately marred by divine fire that consumes two priests who have violated the covenant. Aaron, their father, can only stand back and watch as the corpses of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, were dragged out of the sanctuary. In the second narrative, a member of the community breaks the third commandment and is stoned to death. Moreover, the book concludes on a negative note with a list of blessings for obedience to the covenant and curses for disobedience. The curses far outweigh the blessings. The imbalance indicates an expectation of covenant violation. In addition, the last curse of exile proves to be the ultimate curse that Israel could experience. It is the death of the nation. Hope is held out for Israel in a foreign land, however. And that hope is grounded not in the Sinai covenant, but in the Abrahamic covenant, which is repeated three times in one verse. That's Leviticus 26.42. So just by the simple act of repetition, you have to pick up the significance of the Abrahamic covenant. If the people confess their sins and have a change of heart, the covenant with the patriarchs will be remembered. The end of exile is implied. That was Dempster on Leviticus. There's, very good. I know. To finish up, Hampton, allow me this. <clears throat> it's another book on Leviticus I'm holding in my hand. There's this cool red cover, and it's titled Leviticus. The author, it's in a series of commentary, the Apollos Old Testament commentary. This is the, the text on Leviticus. And the author is Nobuyashi Kiyuchi. So okay. just, I know. Just, oh, I know. I'm going to introduce you to him. So um, just as in medicine, there are, um, divisions, so for in, or specialties, right? You say you're a medical doctor, and up here in Vail, you want to work in the mountains. You're a orthopedist. Of course, there are other types of doc, but 
that that's really a prominent one around ski resorts. Right. Right. Lots of skeletal injuries. So orthopedists, those are the guys that are working on, you know, the mechanics of your, your bone structure, broken legs, broken shoulders, like you have, you're seeing a orthopedic guy for your shoulder. Right. And then within that major specialty, then there's even a narrower, right? I do shoulders, I do knees, that kind of thing. Exactly. And so it is in biblical study. There are guys. So Kiyuchi here, the the big division for him, he'd be an Old Testament scholar. But within that field, you could narrow him down to he studies Leviticus and spends his life doing that. So imagine the what you can glean from the field of these guys work right so you know we know m many of these guys but a lot of the guys we know or at least i know are, are more new testament guys so for instance if you want to study luke well you, you better read what daryl box saying mm -hmm. right that's that's his field and there's guys that just study jeremiah and when i say just it, it would also pertain to our analogy with, with doctors. If you ask an orthopedic guy a general medical question, he's going to know a lot about that, even though his specific field would be orthopedics. So Kiyuchi is going to know a lot about all the Old Testament and about the Bible itself, even though his specialty is Leviticus. But what a gift that there are people that can specialize in just that narrow of a field. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I want to read just a little bit from him about some of um, Leviticus. I in this book, right, let me turn 510 pages <laughs> about Leviticus. <laughs> so... Here's an important subject he brings up. That I just wanted to touch on just to whet people's appetite. This isn't going to be any kind of full study. It's just going to spark some thoughts. He has a section in the introduction on holiness because that's another gigantic concept in Leviticus, in all of the Bible, but in Leviticus specifically. So much of the symbolism, for instance, is going to have to do with that. And one of the ways I would introduce the book of Leviticus is it's kind of like, hey, meet dad, <laughs> right? You've just been born through Exodus, right? It's described much like the delivery of a child. Red Sea parts, here comes Israel being born, delivered onto the other side of the sea, here you go. And just like my own daughter's birth, you know, after she popped out, they placed her in my arms. And it was like, you know, they wrap her up first, then place her in your arms. And it's almost as if you could say, hey, Sophia, meet dad. <laughs> so, right, right. so imagine the book of Leviticus, you know, here's Israel wrapped up and it's placed in God's arms. And you could say to Israel, meet dad. And the first thing Israel needs to learn about dad is he's holy. And that's going to be an issue because 
His holiness, as you see in that book, can kill you. Right? So, holiness, a big issue. In, Lev in the Levitical laws, Kiyuchi says, humans, objects, and time are said to be holy. What, what's, what's he referring to? Dempster did the same thing. What are they referring to when they say time is holy? Aren't they referring to like the calendar? So like the day of atonement on this month, on this day. Yeah. And, and right, that's what they mean. And here's when you have your feasts. And here's when everything reverts back to original ownership. That's what they mean by time. Okay. The time is holy. So priests, offerings, sancta, what he's referring to by the word sancta is like the, all the accoutrements of worship, right? Like the table of showbread, the curtain, the utensils, the altar, the horns, stuff like that. Um, and, and time. The Israelites are never said to be holy, though they are commanded. So in other words, that's Kiyuchi saying explicitly what Dempster meant by indicative and imperative. Right. <laughs> They're said to be holy. That's indicative. But they're commanded to, or they're never said to be holy, but they are commanded to be holy uh, by observing the Lord's commandments. Well, holiness at least means, so think, think of the definition of that word. That's critical for every Christian to think through the word holiness. In, in this little section, he's not going to define it the way I do. Um, he's almost talking about what I would call extrapolated holiness, like the application of God's holiness into the camp of Israel. But he's not, at least in this little section that we're reading, directly addressing the attribute of holiness that God has. He's indirectly discussing it as an application. And I would say the essence of the term holiness is separate right god is separate from everything he's holy there's only one holy being none of the angels are holy and to the extent that they are it's extrapolated well and it's that, isn't that the idea behind not mixing your yes materials and not mixing yes the plants in the field is the separate. yes yes so He's going to nuance that definition. I'm just setting this up for our listeners that fundamentally in your mind, you should have the concept that it's separate, but there's lots of applications of that. There's power involved in that. That's why Nadab and Abihu were killed instantly because they violated his holiness. Right. So it's, it's holiness can be a power. Right, but it's all going to relate ultimately to that concept of six, completely separate from sin. Completely. So, Kiyuchi says this, though. While holiness at least means belonging to the divine sphere. That's a good way to say that. Uh, this definition still fails to clarify the relationship between holiness 
and uncleanness slash cleanness, cleanness, like how do those terms, clean and unclean, relate to holiness? That's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Particularly in the view of the symbolic meanings of the latter terms. Now, here's how those latter two terms, cleanness and uncleanness, what's clean, what's unclean. Think of some a follow-up thought to that, but relate it to that. The state of hiding and uncovering oneself respectively. He's going to, Kiyuchi in this book is going to say some stuff that I've never heard before. And it's really interesting food for thought. In fact, he's going to define sin primarily by hiding. I've never thought of it that way before. But it's really interesting. You know, at first, I kind of closed the book. So I don't know if I'm even going to read that because that's so far different than what I'm used to thinking. I mean, sin, fundamentally, missing the mark, right? You didn't hit the target. You didn't do what I said. You didn't think the right thing. You didn't do the right thing, right? You violated my holiness. Those are all phrases that help define sin, but hiding a, a phrase comes to mind. Darkness hates the light. It, the more I thought about it, Hampton, just like you're saying, I started to begin to see what he was saying. Mm -hmm. how, how about this? What's the first thing God said to Adam? Where are you? Where are you? He was not there. yes he's hiding not that god doesn't it's not he's omniscient he knows where adam is right but what he's pointing out is you're hiding from me now you're sinful and it's I really interesting i'll have to think on that for a while okay so <laughs> let me so let's take that last phrase and as this is how we'll end up this morning I, you said cogitate on that because you're a scholar. I'm just a guy of the street, Hampton. But my phrase for it would have been, I need to chew on that for a while. Right. Okay. Do you remember some laws in Leviticus about what you could eat, what kind of animals, and the ones that you could had to chew the cud right was that symbolic of is that god saying you really need to think about this i do i think that's what he's saying Interesting. i i think that's insight into the mind of god you really need to think about this so those animals that metaphorically kind of look like they're doing that those are okay for you those are clean hmm. okay so let's leave it there very interesting but we did a whole book we did All a whole book see because you didn't rabbit trail me today 
Well, we did also go about 30 minutes longer, too. So <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> That's OK. Well, I will talk to you next time. Thank you. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm-hmm.